1: I could stay here forever.
2: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
1: Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs.
0: And I'm Deanna Reasonover.
1: This is Periodic Talks.
0: Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week even, global health.
1: It's stem for those of us who at least attempted to build a robot as a kid.
0: Oh yeah. Big pile of cardboard boxes with googly eyes.
1: <laughs> or taking apart things and never putting them back together. Oh a
0: hundred percent. Just the random backs of remote controls just gone for good.
1: Yep. This week I was introduced to videos of snow diving foxes recently. Have you ever seen this? So cute! So yes! cute! I had no idea that uh, foxes in the winter... Dive into the snow, yes. and it's incredible. I, I encourage everyone to look up snow diving foxes, and they they really leap very high in the air before they dive headfirst into the snow to yes. catch their prey. It's amazing. It is so
0: adorable and so bloodthirsty at the same time. <laughs> They're little terrors.
1: I want to know more about how the foxes know where the I don't know what are they hunting mice how how they know where they are underneath the snow. It's smell, right? That's a great question. I think smell is great. I don't know. <laughs> I think let's smell see. is great. I think smell is great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, but let's ask our producer to look it up and she can find out and tell us later in the show. Ooh,
0: yes. Oh, and here's the nerdy thing that I was thinking about. Mine's a little dense. Uh, it's going to take me a little while to work it up. I was on TikTok the other day. Um, All of my stories start off like this, and I wish I remember the username. But there was a person who's a medical student. Uh, He had darker skin, much like mine. And he was saying that his professor told him to look for signs of... um, low oxygen by looking for things like the skin turning blue. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that he would not be able to tell on himself necessarily if his skin was turning blue. So he asked his professor for other ways. And, you know, the professor explained, like, look at the nail beds. Mm. Uh, And I was like, ooh, that's great because nail beds, you know, there's not necessarily as much melanin here. So it's easier to see changes in skin color. Mm -hmm. That got me into looking up something that's happening with COVID patients and something that when I thought I was possibly sick, they told me to do, which is to buy a pulse oximeter machine, which basically measures how much oxygen is in your blood. It shines a little light through uh, your fingernail bed, and the amount of light that goes through tells the machine what your blood oxygen level is. Does that make sense so far? Yes, Right. There's a study that basically says that people with darker skin, they often get incorrect numbers from these machines. So that's a problem. Uh, So I looked all that up. I called my cousin, who's a cinematographer and also a director of photography. And what he does is he works on set and he says, "Okay, this is how much light we need to get this particular shot. And I said, don't we have machines that can already determine, like, if this much darkness is present, then this is how much light we need to be accurate. And he was saying, you know, you should call your sister, who's a doctor, (laughs) 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 because it's probably not a question of light. It's probably a question of opacity Mm. for skin and how much light transmission dark skin can let in. And it was just very cool talking to these two different sides of my family about what possible solutions were.
1: Wow. So what happens next in this story? Are you going to become an inventor?
0: No. No, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm an actor. I'm like musing. You know what I mean? I'm like, I, I don't have I wouldn't know how to do that. I'd be squeezing Kurt Plus is what this would be the equivalent of. I don't know what's going on.
1: Well, that's amazing. And I, I love that that led to these conversations with members of your family, too.
0: Yeah, You know what? It is very cool having members of family who are in STEM and STEAM fields to yeah. that I can talk to about stuff like this.
1: I feel like we keep circling back to these problems in tech where it's not designed to be inclusive and they're really important to discuss. And, you know, we have another really interesting conversation coming up today. Right.
0: You interviewed Dr. Celine Gounder, yeah? Yeah.
1: Yes, and Dr. Gounder is an infectious disease specialist and an epidemiologist. So that means she studies infectious diseases within populations of people, and she also works as a physician. And I really wanted to talk to her because she's on President Biden's coronavirus task force. So she spent her life studying infectious diseases, and now she's trying to help get COVID-19 under control. And, you know, you can get all the latest detailed info about vaccines and the new strains of the virus from the news. But for our show, I'm curious about the person who would choose to do this kind of research as their life's work. What draws someone to work in infectious disease? So that's where the conversation started.
0: I can't wait to hear it.
1: All right. So let's get to my interview with infectious disease specialist, epidemiologist and physician Dr. Celine Gounder. Was there a single moment that sparked your interest in pursuing a life in science, um, in medicine, or was it just an overall interest you had as a kid?
3: You know, I was good at pretty much all subjects growing up as a kid, but I would say I was farther ahead in math, especially. So I was already doing algebra, I think in the second or third grade. So that's probably what I excelled at the most but you know was really good at subjects across the board i think what resonated with me about science wasn't wasn't necessarily even science itself but rather how science could be used as a tool in service of others and i think that's what really got me interested in it
1: was there a story of a person in particular that used science to help others or A news story or something that resonated with you. When did you realize that there was that link between science and helping people?
3: I took um, a couple courses in college: one in medical anthropology, one about health and human rights. And so, in the medical anthropology class, I read "AIDS and Accusation," which was written by Paul Farmer, and it was about the impact of HIV on rural Haitians and The impact of a multilateral funded project, development project, and how displacement of people led to an increase in HIV infection and and sort of the downstream effects from there. And what I really liked about that course and what I was learning at the time was sort of the intersection of many different kinds of sciences and how that sort of interdisciplinary perspective, you know, you could use to better target um, hard science or biological science interventions at the same time and and design them better.
1: When she said that about using science to help people, that really Mm -hmm. struck me, because that's not a connection I ever made growing up when I was taking science classes.
0: Yeah, I always thought of science as being this kind of like just purely academic and not mm-hmm. having that sort of humanitarian approach to it. So that was very cool to hear her talk about. Yeah, and it's so wild that she was doing algebra in what third grade? What? How old are you then?
1: I don't know. Uh, you're eight, nine?
0: I, I don't. I can't even do the math on how <laughs> old you are. <laughs> <laughs> but I think her having that really early background in the hard sciences, as she describes it, probably helped her make that connection to the social sciences mm-hmm. easier later.
1: Yeah.
3: My work was largely focused on tuberculosis and HIV. And then later I worked on Ebola in West Africa during that epidemic, was there for a couple months. And it was around around that time that I was starting to pivot towards um, communication and medical journalism, um, I had already started doing some writing and some television even before the Ebola epidemic, and that really ramped up during that time. And I think part of the reason I started to do that work is I saw a real gap between academic research and science and policy and practice on the ground. And there was this disconnect of, yes, just because you published these papers in the New England Journal of Medicine or wherever didn't necessarily mean that that research was impacting people. And that's what I had thought was attractive about this area in the beginning. You know, this is sort of why I went down this path um, starting in college and found myself sort of stepping back saying, well, am I really accomplishing what I had set out to do? And what I saw as the gap was the translation of science, and that means you have to translate it for policymakers, you have to translate it for, you know, government officials, for activists um, in communities, patient advocates, for example. Uh, You need to translate it for local journalists who also help put out this information. And so that's why I started to move in the direction of science communications and medical journalism, because I felt like that was a gap I could fill. And that would um, really translate into the kind of impact I wanted to have.
1: Uh, All okay. right, let's pause the conversation and take a short break. We'll be right back.
2: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you.
1: So, okay, let me kind of walk through the trajectory of your career. You're doing all this work in global health. Then you pivoted towards communicating with the public. You've written for The New Yorker, The Washington Post. You started appearing on TV news like MSNBC. And then it was announced in late 2020 that you'd be joining the coronavirus task force. And as we're recording this, a couple of vaccines have been approved by the FDA, But according to the CDC, there have been over 25 million cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. so far. What recommendations are you and the other members making just in terms of how we should be thinking in this year, in 2022 and beyond? Oh, that's a big question. Um,
3: What is going to be challenging, especially as we enter these next phases of vaccination, is Balancing on the one hand the need to be patient and to wait our turn and sort of to think about that waiting our turn with respect to how are we maximizing the impact of vaccines. And so it's not just about protecting the individual person who's vaccinated, but what you're re- what we're really trying to do is to maximize the impact also with respect to transmission uh, and public health. And so, you know, you could say, well, 100 people vaccinated, does it really matter who those 100 people are? Well, it does from a public health perspective. If you're trying to prevent death, if you're trying to prevent transmission, that means there are certain people you need to prioritize. And that's actually in the benefit of everybody because you're trying to extend that protection beyond the individual person. So I think we have to be balancing that message around patients and what is a broader social good with some pockets of hesitancy and anxiety, um, people who perhaps don't want the government telling them what to do, uh, people who have a distrust of the medical system, um, which is especially an issue among communities of color for very good reason, uh, because there has been a history of racism perpetrated on communities of color in this country by the healthcare system as well as the broader government. Um, You have people who believe natural is the best uh, no matter what. And then finally, you have people who are just anxious because of the speed with which the vaccines were developed since the coronavirus became a pandemic. And um, I think that last group um, of people who are anxious about the vaccine, well, you know, I think A lot of people have now received the vaccine. And so there's evidence that the vaccine is safe and effective, um, not just from the clinical trials, but from broader vaccination. So I'm hopeful that that experience may be helping to sway that group.
0: I think one of the things that I really appreciate that she just did was she acknowledged a lot of the reasons that people might be hesitant to get a vaccine, including Something that I've heard, you know, in my own family, which is people of color have not necessarily had the best relationship with uh, the government and their scientific experiments. I'm specifically thinking of the Tuskegee experiment where Mm -hmm. uh, black men um, were not given treatment for syphilis that they had in order to study the effects of syphilis um, when there was actually treatment available. That has not boded well for People of color. And and also other things, like—and then I I won't talk about this too much, but also even women in Puerto Rico being uh, given birth control treatments that were way too strong in order to study, like, what's the worst possible thing that could happen.
1: Stuff like that. It's not good. No, it's not. And it's a very important point that she makes and that you make as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think why it's so important, I think, that she's talking about this is because until we talk about it, until we acknowledge, like, hey, this was a problem, if you just keep trying to sweep it under the rug and say, well, that was the past— it's going to feel hard for people to believe that it won't happen again.
1: Not to immediately be a downer, but it feels like there are more pandemics that may occur in, you know, our, our immediate lifetime. What can we do to be better prepared for the next pandemic? Um, Well, some of those
3: things were put in place after Ebola. But then unfortunately, budget cuts, budget reallocations, those things were dismantled. And so I think we definitely need to at least reset back to what was put in place with respect to pandemic preparedness at that time and then build up from there. But I agree with you. I think we are going to see more epidemics and pandemics. We've seen over the last couple decades that these Um, diseases are emerging more frequently. And that's a reflection of increasing population size, um, environmental degradation, climate change. All of these things sort of together conspire to having more uh, frequent introductions of infectious diseases from other animal reservoirs into human populations. And some of those will become epidemics and pandemics. And so that does mean you have to start to think about climate change, not just for climate change itself, but also, you know, what is the synergy between that and, you know, how is that driving infectious diseases? You know, how is uh, overpopulation in certain areas driving infectious diseases? Why is it important to preserve certain environmental habitats and have those um, remain at some distance from human habitats? I think you do need to be thinking more broadly as well.
1: For you, as a person. um, What has 2020 been like? It's been a
3: really hard year. Um, I mean, I think it's been hard on me and my husband and my family for all the reasons this has been hard on other people. My father-in-law passed away, not from coronavirus, but from Parkinson's disease. So, you know, that was a big loss and that was really hard. Um, Not being able to see my mom and my sisters has been really hard. You know, I think a lot of the ways this has been hard on people has been hard on us. Um, And then there's just the work. There's the work at the hospital, which has been super stressful.
1: Can you say, um, just to clarify for listeners, which hospital is it and what, what is your work specifically at that hospital? So I am both an internist
3: and an infectious disease specialist, and I practice at Bellevue Hospital. I see patients on the wards at Bellevue Hospital. And so I see patients who are really admitted for a whole host of things. It could be, you came in with a heart attack, you came in with kidney failure, you came in with COVID. And basically March, April, uh, all the way through most of the summer was almost all COVID that we were seeing. You know, that was a a stressful situation. Um, Just the way the hospital was filled to the gills with nothing but that. You know, we had issues around um, shortages of personal protective equipment, and that made the environment also very stressful. And I think also the feeling that in some ways, I don't know, we were being vilified or blamed by certain members of the public while we were working so hard trying to take care of patients uh, during all of this. I think that was... um, very taxing.
1: Well, I mean, what you're doing is so incredibly important and vital, but it is also, as you're describing, incredibly difficult and tough. What keeps you going? Honestly, I think adrenaline. <laughs> um,
3: yeah, I, like I have, I have taken one day off, um, and in some ways, I felt more tired after that because it's like you let yourself come off of that adrenaline high. And then it's like, oh, I really am tired. <laughs> and so I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing that I took that day off. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think it's that. I think really loving the work and feeling like I am making a difference. I think that mm-hmm. definitely
1: keeps me going. So you began your career in science. You were really drawn to that connection you could see between the science itself and helping people. What kind of gratification do you feel from knowing that you've helped people?
3: Yeah, and this is part of the reason I um, still see patients as well as do this bigger picture work. I really like having the spectrum because you take care of a patient and you come home from the hospital and you're like, I saved a life today. Or, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks, we treated their cancer or, you know, whatever it is. I think. The gratification you get from clinical medicine tends to be on a much shorter timeline. Whereas public health work, you know, trying to have an impact on a population level, it takes more time. And so I kind of like having both, where one is going to take a lot longer to have an impact. But when I see that come to fruition, it's going to be like, wow. But then I still have those smaller day to day wins that also help keep me going in that time.
1: Yeah. What have you learned about yourself? Through your work,
3: hmm. I guess one thing I've learned is just because you're good at something doesn't mean that's what you should do. You know, I think what I've learned is I'm good at a lot of different things, and you know, some of the worst advice I was ever given was, you know, they call it work because it's work, <laughs> and and I was, you know, afterwards I was like, what? Um, and I think what I've realized is, yes, my my work is hard. But I love my work and I don't think of it as work. I think the way that other people might think of their jobs as work um, because it's fulfilling. I mean, about the global health part of the work I did with global health, you get to tackle some of the most um, urgent health problems while working with colleagues of different cultures and backgrounds and languages and learning tremendously from them. I think what's most rewarding about clinical medicine is getting to know patients um, and hearing their life stories and really being sort of a shepherd along the way of of helping people through some of their hardest moments in life. And I think doctors and scientists remain some of the most trusted figures in our society. And so when we speak up about whether it's a public health problem or uh, an issue of injustice, um, I think people do sit up and listen. um, And... I think you can, you know, really have an exciting impact in that way.
1: Why is it important to be of service to others through our lives and our work?
3: I don't know. I I guess to me, like, what's the point of living? Otherwise, I mean, you know, if you're not making the world a better place and contributing to society and making your community better, um, I mean, what was the point?
1: Oh, you're going to make me cry with that one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) well, I thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, let's take one last break. Then we've got a story about an inspiring Black researcher from the early 20th century. It's
0: story time! This is the story of Dr. Charles Drew, an African-American researcher and surgeon who had a lasting impact in how we work with blood plasma today. His research helped develop a large-scale blood bank in the 1940s.
1: Before we learn more about Dr. Drew, let's get into some history. Because people have been experimenting with blood for centuries, even when they didn't know what the heck they were doing.
0: So let's run through a not so great bloody history. In the 1600s, a dude in England said that this mostly reddish stuff in our bodies, it circulates. So that's the earliest record I can find of a physician describing the concept of blood circulation.
1: People got pretty into trying to figure out the mechanics of blood flow and what we'd call today doing a blood transfusion. That's the process of transferring blood. So like giving it to someone bleeding out after an injury.
0: Yeah, lots of people are experimenting to see how it could work. Someone tries sharing blood between dogs, blood from animals into humans. It's a whole mess. So when they try to give blood from one actual human to another human, the infections are terrible. And they don't really know how to store blood, so sometimes a donor just has a tube in their arm connecting them to another person. And don't even get me started on the blood
1: clot. Okay, we could skip over that part. It's kind of gross.
0: No worries. Basically, people have been researching blood for a long time, and one of the key goals is to learn how to take donated blood from one person or an animal, I guess, and give it to someone who's sick or injured.
1: Enter Charles Drew. He's born in 1904 in the Washington, D.C. area. For those of
0: you who know D.C., you're probably familiar with where he grew up. It's an area called Foggy Bottom.
1: And in the early 1900s, that was a working-class neighborhood with a large Black community.
0: So Charles is raised in that atmosphere by a father who installs carpets and an educated mother. He's a decent student, and he likes playing sports.
1: By high school, he receives an athletic scholarship and decides to go to Amherst College, which is in Massachusetts. He's just one of a little over a dozen Black students at the school. While
0: at college, he becomes interested in going to medical school, but his options are limited. Remember, this is still the early 20th century. There's a lot of factors barring Black people from pursuing careers in medicine. Now, some prominent medical schools do admit non-white students at this point, but it's pretty limited.
1: Then there's also the cost of tuition. And if you do become a Black physician, you can't just practice anywhere. This is the 1920s. A lot of white people refused to be seen by a Black doctor. Even so,
0: after college, Charles starts saving money for medical school. He ultimately decides to go to a university in Montreal where he studies transfusion medicine, a subspecialty that looks at the transfer of blood and its properties.
1: So let's actually break down what we mean by blood and its properties. Okay, so blood is obvious. It's the stuff in our veins. It's a body fluid that helps deliver substances like nutrients and oxygen to certain cells. And then it transports toxic stuff away from those same cells. So blood is like this critical, life-saving treasure we carry around. But...
0: You can break down blood into properties. So just to start, there's a difference between blood plasma and blood cells. Your blood plasma carries your blood cells. The plasma is mostly liquid. It's got proteins, antibodies, and other stuff. It also allows your blood cells to circulate. Back to Charles now. He's at the very start of the kind of research that would lead to breakthroughs in how we can do life-saving blood transfusions today.
1: He's really curious about blood plasma because that can be used as a substitute for actual blood. Plus, it has some advantages during emergency situations. So, for example, it can work regardless of a person's blood type. If you have a patient that is seriously injured and bleeding out, you might be able to give them blood plasma even if the hospital is out of their blood type. Plasma also retains
0: some of the same life-saving treasures we mentioned earlier that's in the blood. During this emergency that we're living through today, the coronavirus pandemic, we've also been using some blood plasma. Physicians are collecting it from some people who have recovered from COVID-19 because during their recovery, their body might develop antibodies to the virus. So blood plasma with antibodies has been a treatment for patients still battling the virus.
1: But back in the 1920s, when Charles is doing his research on blood plasma, he's trying to figure out how to extend the shelf life. Because once you collect it, ideally, you want to be able to store it until someone really needs it.
0: So Charles is looking at dehydrating blood plasma and trying to figure out how to do that while still keeping the plasma's integrity, ideally so that it can be reused later. The trick is to figure out how to dehydrate it without it quickly deteriorating.
1: Almost a decade later, Charles is still doing exhaustive experimentation. He's examining older blood in transfusion research, analyzing substances that can help preserve plasma's integrity. He's even testing what temperature it should be stored.
0: So he finishes his thesis. It's called Banked Blood, a study in blood preservation. And he becomes the first African-American to receive a doctorate of medical science from Columbia University.
1: By that time, he's developed, please allow me to quote from a feature from PBS, he's developed a method for processing and storing blood plasma that allowed it to be dehydrated, shipped, then reconstituted just before transfusions. It was a tremendous breakthrough. Up until then, unprocessed blood was perishable and would become unusable after about a week. So this is history-making stuff.
0: And the timing of this breakthrough is critical because by now it's the late 1930s and the start of World War II.
1: Advancements in automatic weapons plus an allying of all the world's largest military forces would make this the deadliest conflict in human history. And here's where Dr. Drew's work fits in. In 1940, the U.S. is allied with Great Britain. The war is really hitting Europe hard, so the U.S. government wants to send blood to the U.K. to help their injured military and civilians.
0: Dr. Drew is instrumental in a program called Blood for Britain. He oversees the collection of more than 10,000 pints of blood plasma. It's collected in the U.S. and then shipped to the U.K. It's probably the first nationwide blood bank program of its kind. And his research about effective blood plasma storage helped the shipment last all the way to Europe.
1: The program receives so much acclaim that in 1941, Dr. Drew is asked to help lead the American Red Cross blood bank. Unfortunately, moving a Black man into a leadership position doesn't change the racially charged attitudes of the era. He's asked to segregate
0: the blood collections, to label blood from Black donors so they don't mix with blood from white donors. Dr. Drew ends up resigning after about a year on the job.
1: After that, he refocuses his energy on research and teaching at Howard University, a historically Black institution in Washington, D.C.
0: If the name Charles Drew sounds familiar, but you hadn't heard this story before, you might have seen one of the many, many schools and buildings named after him. So there's Charles R. Drew Hall at Howard University, where he taught. Charles Drew Memorial Cultural House at Amherst College, his alma mater. But there's even a Charles R. Drew Middle School in Los Angeles and a Dr. Charles R. Drew College Preparatory Academy in San Francisco. Seriously, there's a bunch out there. I had even heard of him because for a long time there was a Charles Drew Middle School in Detroit, my hometown.
1: All right, that's it. That's our episode.
0: Oh, actually, uh, we have one more thing to tell people. Remember at the beginning how we were talking about snow diving foxes and how they managed to find their prey under the snow? Yes. Yes. Okay. Our producer, Tamika, actually looked up and has the answer for us.
1: Oh! Ah! Oh, yay, Tamika.
2: Yes, it was so fun. I'd never seen these videos. It's so <laughs> wild that they can just dive into the snow and you see like their feet <laughs> hanging out <laughs> cuz they're like finding the mice under there. They jump so high, too. Yeah, but I actually found out they're not relying as heavily on their sense of smell. It's actually their hearing. <laughs> they're hearing what? the mice Ooh. under the snow. Wow. Dang. Except there is another theory. As to why they're successful sometimes, because it's really challenging. So it's said that they're most successful when they're facing north (gasps) because they're relying on the Earth's magnetic field to help them plot their trajectory as they dive.
0: Oh, you know, that explains a lot. Whenever I have an audition and it's gone good, I always face north. I always (laughs) just stand no matter where the camera is. I just face north.
2: You've got an internal compass. (laughs) Yeah, it's success. Um, But that's a theory. That's a theory. Other experts say that there's more evidence needed to prove that. It is kind of wild to think about, though.
1: It's remarkable either way, because either they have incredible hearing, right, that they can hear the mice underneath the snow. Or, yeah, they have an internal compass that responds to magnetic north. And that's also amazing.
2: Yeah, it's just wild how we're connected to the Earth. I mean... We're all animals here.
0: But if I took away your GPS, could you walk to Trader Joe's to your nearest Trader Joe's without a GPS? That's the question. No. <laughs>
1: I just I orient myself with the Hollywood sign. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon with help from Kimmy Gregory.
1: Our engineering is by Brendan Burns and Jared O'Connell. Our theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from
0: Catherine Cypher.
1: Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher.
0: picture.